You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So this morning I want to start by reminding you that Satan, the enemy of our souls, is in the business of outwitting Christians. And I think that word outwitting is important. We find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, and it means to exploit or to take advantage of something in a sinister way. The Apostle Paul tells us that one way to guard against this being outwitted by Satan is to be aware of his schemes. If we know the tactics of the enemy, then we will know better how to defend against them. And well, when it comes to the tactics of Satan, he has a history of outwitting humans by distorting God's truth. We see that right away in Genesis 3 when the serpent speaks to Adam. We see it in the Gospels when the devil tempts Jesus. Satan takes the word of God and he tries to twist it. And I mention all this now because our passage this morning has to do with manhood and womanhood. And that topic in our day is the devil's playground. This is one of the most contentious, misunderstood, misapplied teachings in Christian discipleship. And we're about to spend 35 minutes looking straight at it. And so I just want to acknowledge the possible uneasiness here, maybe even when you just heard the text read. And I want to clarify our goal for this sermon. And really, this is the goal of every sermon. It's that we as Christians, we... As a local church, we want to, we long to understand and embrace and express the Bible's teaching as the truth of God, which it is. Okay, now we need the Holy Spirit to do that, and we're going to ask for His help here in just a minute. But also, I want to go ahead and give you right away the outline for this passage for those of you who like outlines. And if you don't like outlines, What's wrong with you? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I do hope this helps here. There are four main ideas, all right? Four main ideas in the passage. There are two for wives and two for husbands, and we're going to put them in two parts. Part one is over here for wives, and there are two points under part one. Number one, wives honor God's enduring design for your marriage, verses one and two. Then point two, wives, make your true adorning be your character, verses three to six. Then over here is part two. Part two is for husbands. There are two points under part two. Number one, husbands, live together with your wives in the light that you will receive together with them the gift of heaven. And then number two, husbands, pray. Both of those are in verse 7. Now, Peter is speaking to husbands and wives here, but I think what he says has application for all men and women, and we're going to see that. But first, let's pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, this morning as we gather here, we confess that your word indeed is truth and life, but that we in our sin are ignorant and blind. And so we need you and we beg you, Father, to help us by your Spirit to see and to receive what you are saying to us this morning in your word. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, part one for wives. Here's point one of part one. Wives, honor God's enduring design for marriage. In verse one, Peter begins with the word likewise, which is connecting back to chapter two, verses 13 and 18. He's saying likewise, in a similar spirit of submissiveness, wives, be submissive or be subject to your own husbands. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us this same command a couple other places in the New Testament. Most notably is Ephesians chapter 5. And there he adds the word respect in Ephesians 5 verse 33. He says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I think that helps us understand a little more of what the Bible is teaching here. It's that a wife submitting to her husband means that she respects or she honors her husband's authority as husband. Okay, this is part of God's design for marriage, which was and is a staple truth of Christian doctrine. How the New Testament explains marriage was not a carryover from the first century Greco-Roman culture. It was a countercultural reality back then, just like it's a countercultural reality today. In short, the Christian teaching on marriage is that the husband and wife have a complementary relationship of unity and distinction. One way to say it is that the husband is called to lead with love as the head and authority, And the wife is called to submit with trust as the heart and help. That's God's enduring design for marriage. And as Paul puts it, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church, Ephesians 5, 25. And part of this mystery, part of God's design, is the wife's her submissiveness to her husband, which Peter commands here. But he also adds in verse 1, that wives should do this, wives should be submissive to their husbands, so that even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, this is an amazing thing for Peter to say. He is writing to Christians, but he he anticipates that some of these Christian women will be married to men who are not Christians. And this is what I think we can call missional realism. I wrote about this in the article we sent out yesterday. The the Apostle Peter, I believe, has in mind here an unbelieving couple. This couple hears the gospel, or at least the, the wife hears the gospel, and she is born again. She believes the gospel, but the husband does not believe the gospel. Okay, that and that that happens. Okay, that's a messy situation, but it's a realistic situation. Peter knows it happens. And and in a situation like that, there's nothing that the wife wants more. There's nothing that the church wants more than for that unbelieving husband to become a Christian like his wife. And we might think that that this is so important, that the conversion of this husband is so important that the wife should pull out all the stops and letting him know. She needs to employ every conceivable evangelistic strategy there is to do everything possible in order to help him believe. Forget the submission stuff for a minute, Peter. This guy needs to become a Christian, right? We, We would tend to think that way. But that's not what Peter says here. Peter tells this Christian wife to honor 
God's enduring design for marriage. He tells her, stick with your part. God's design for marriage endures even in the case of an unbelieving husband. And in fact, God's design is actually a means that he might be pleased to use to bring that unbelieving husband to faith. That's what the phrase means there, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of, of their wives. What Peter's doing here is it's a play on words because he describes these unbelieving husbands as those who do not obey the word, and yet they're going to be one without a word, right? So we have these, these word unbelievers, these word non-believers will become word believers without words. That's what he's saying. Now, this doesn't mean that these husbands will be saved without hearing the gospel. They absolutely must hear the gospel, and they have, they do hear the gospel. But Peter is saying that the, the method, the strategy for their conversion is not their wives repeatedly talking to them about their souls, but instead it's their wives' godly behavior. The wife's holiness is compelling. Her, her holiness, her submissiveness, her respectful and pure conduct is a means that God might be pleased to use in saving her husband. In summary, the command here for wives who submit to their husbands is a call for these wives to honor God's enduring design for marriage. God's design is not upended by the circumstance of an unbelieving husband. Even in a situation like that, which is far from ideal, even if her husband does not believe the gospel, God's design for marriage endures and the wife should honor that design. Now, let me make one note here because I want us to be aware of possible distortion. The only submission that we are called to that is absolute is to Jesus himself. Every other authority has qualifications, even government, like we saw last week. And so, in the possible scenario of an abusive husband who is worse than an unbeliever, in that scenario, the husband has misunderstood and misapplied his authority. In that scenario, the husband has been outwitted by Satan and he is in sin and the wife is not called to submit to that. Wives, Peter says, honor God's design by submitting to your husbands. And Peter and Paul adds, as is fitting in the Lord, Colossians 3.18, as to the Lord, Ephesians 5.22. That's the first point. Wives, honor God's enduring design for marriage. Here's point number two, verses three to six. Wives, make your true adorning be your character. Now, after, uh, after mentioning and addressing the wife's conduct in verse 2, 
he double clicks on it in verse three. And this is what he says. He says, do not let, verse three, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So this is, we can see here, it's a negative positive command that has to do with the external and the internal, and it all centers on that word for adorn. The word adorn is the only time, only time it's used in the entire New Testament, and I think adorn is a good English translation. It also means to beautify or to decorate, and we get the idea, right? It's fascinating here that when Peter mentions this, he, he expects adornment to happen, right? He expects adornment to happen as part of the richness of God's created world. The issue is to focus your adornment on what matters most, which is not the external. It's not the braiding of hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing. Now, when Peter mentions these things, he's not saying that those things are bad in themselves. Peter is not prohibiting braided hair or wearing gold any more than he's prohibiting putting on clothes, right? What he's saying is, don't mistake these things as your true adornment. Braid your hair, fine. Wear a gold necklace, okay. Put on clothes, of course. But don't think that these things are the manifestation of your beauty. Don't think that it's your outfit that's the difference maker in your person. Instead, know it's your character. Know that it's the hidden person of your heart. It's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's your humility and your holiness. And this is something that, of course, applies to all women, whether you're married or not. And I don't want to embarrass anybody this morning. So I want to say it like this. I know of a dad who has thought a lot about this verse because he prays it for his four daughters all the time. And it gets very practical when you begin to pray about this and you begin to instruct in light of this truth, it gets very practical. The question comes down to what kind of beauty, what kind of beauty, sisters, do you imagine that you bring into the spaces you enter? That's how this dad explains it to his daughters. Imagine you're getting ready in the morning, you're looking in the mirror, you're getting your external adorning set. Now, when you finish doing that and you walk out of the room, do you assume that your external adornment is the main contribution to your person? Or do you understand that it's mainly the internal, your heart, your character that's beautiful and therefore that should be your main focus? Because that never fades. That never diminishes. That is imperishable. Verse 4, which in God's sight is very precious. And that's what it's really about. Are we living for the approval of people or for the honor of God? That word precious in verse 4, it's a word that means expensive. There's different ways we might, we kind of lose it maybe in the English because 
when this word was used in the Greek, it, it typically always refers to things. It's said about things like jewelry or clothing. But here, and Peter's being intentional when he does this, Peter takes that word to, and he, he uses it to describe the way that God thinks about the hearts of holy women. God considers their hearts to be precious. And I don't want us to rush past this because for God to see something and to consider it precious has to be one of the greatest blessings imaginable. Because remember, we're talking about God here, okay? This is Yahweh, the creator of all that is. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He spoke the earth and all of its jewels into existence. He possesses everything and he lacks nothing. And yet he, sisters, he would look at your hearts and call them precious. Your heart of holiness carries more value than the most unique, most enchanted diamond there is. Can you imagine that? A heart of holiness, the heart of a holy woman, is more rare and more glorious than the most enchanted jewelry there is and you can adorn yourself with a heart like that then in verse 5 peter grounds this command with an example the example of holy women in the old testament these women hoped in god that's the main distinguishing fact of these women and their hope was expressed in their character including their submissiveness and sarah here is one example she obeyed abraham calling him Lord, which was an actual moment in the Old Testament in Genesis 18, 12. God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and through three men, he repeated to Abraham that he would have a son named Isaac. And if you remember the story, um, Sarah is listening in to this interaction um, from within her tent. And when she hears that promise said, she laughs to herself and she says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? That's what she says. She was saying, she hears the promise, and she says to herself, we are way too old for this. And yet, even in her saying that, she respects Abraham, and she respects his authority as her husband, and she comes to hope in the promise of God. That's how Sarah is an example to Christian wives. And you, sisters, you can follow her example, verse 6, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And when Peter says this here, he's giving us a, a little more of a, a vision into what this holy woman is like. She was a doer of good. Holy women is a doer of good, and she is fearless. And it's very likely that when Peter says this, he has Proverbs 31 in mind. In Proverbs 31, we read about the virtuous woman, this holy woman of Proverbs 31. And one part of her character, one part of her holiness, is that she is fearless about the future. Proverbs 31, verse 25 says strength and dignity are her clothing. 
Do you hear the connection there to 1 Peter 3? The idea of character and adornment being linked together. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come, which means this holy woman is not afraid. She's not wringing her hands in worry about what might go wrong in the future. Maybe she once did that, but she's been through some stuff now, and she knows that God keeps His promises no matter what, and therefore she is content, and she's restful, and she's fearless, and she laughs at the time to come. And look, I know from in light of the last year, after the last 14 months, as Pastor Joe mentioned, this can seem almost impossible to do. There have been new salient fears introduced into our lives. And we all might think that now we have every excuse to bunker down and in the name of safety we withdraw and we opt out and we, we just were not involved. And yet God calls you to be fearless, sisters. And more than ever, sisters, more than ever, holy women, we need your fearlessness. Amen? The church needs your fearlessness. Do not fear anything. That is frightening. All right, now let's go to verse 7 and talk about husbands. That was part one for wives, for women. Now, over here, part two for husbands. And remember now we had the four main ideas, two and then two. And over here for, for husbands, also remember now that the enemy has his tactics. Okay, he, the enemy of our souls, Satan, he tries to distort the truth of God's word in our interpretation and our application. And so what if some knucklehead reads the first six verses of 1 Peter 3 and he thinks that the husband's authority means he's an authoritarian? What if he reads this and he thinks that he's supposed to, as the husband, call all the shots as some kind of domineering ruler? How do we steer through that potential distortion? Well, we start by just letting Peter finish what he's got to say. Okay? Look at verse 7 here. Let me tell you the main idea first. The main idea here, this is point one. Peter is saying, husbands, live together with your wives in the light that you will receive together with them the gift of heaven. Look at verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The first line here literally is, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. Now, most English translations, they say in an understanding way. The NIV translates this, be considerate as you live with your wives. And these translations say it this way because they're trying to explain what kind of knowledge Peter's talking about here. And so they look at the rest of the verse, and the effect basically is that the husband should be understanding and considerate, and that's not wrong, okay? But 
that doesn't really answer the question as to what kind of knowledge Peter has in mind. Is Peter saying that husbands need to live with their wives according to their knowledge of their wives? As in, be an expert husband on your wife. Know everything you can about her. Get in her world. Draw out her heart. Is Peter saying that? I don't think that's what he's saying, but that's really good advice. Okay, guys? I recommend that. I think that's a great thing to do. Husbands, get to know your wives. But I think the knowledge that Peter is talking about here in verse 7 is broader than that. It's not about your wife in particular, but it's referring to God's design for marriage and for men and women overall. Basically, husbands, understand what everyone already knows intuitively, that men and women are different because God means for them to be. The reason that God created humanity in two sexes, man and woman, is because he means for them to be different. I know that might sound super basic, but I think it's worth thinking about. If God wanted humans to be the exact same, then he would have just made one sex, one type, one anatomy. But God didn't do that. Going back to Genesis, the, the way that God made the world was in a pattern of twos. Every aspect of creation has its complement. The heavens and earth, the day and night, the suns and moon, the sea creatures and land animals. And when God made humans, man and woman. Both are made by God, in the image of God, possessing the same dignity and the same worth, but their contributions to the mission of God in this world are distinct. Which means that egalitarian attempts to bleach those distinctions is not just fighting against the will of God, but it's fighting against the way God designed the universe. And husbands who think that way, who try, to bleach, who try to bleach those distinctions, they are not living with their wives according to knowledge. Husbands, understand God's design for men and women and live with your wives in that understanding. And then Peter unpacks that a little more. And this is where it's crucial, okay? The issue, husband, is not just knowing that your wife is different, but it's what you do about that difference. And the Apostle Peter says here, you show your wife honor. You see that in verse 7? When Peter says this, he's explaining the manner by which we live with our wives according to knowledge. It's by showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And a lot of people stumble over this word here, weaker. How in the world is the wife weaker than the husband? And a lot of commentators say that this is most likely a reference to physical strength. And at large, that is empirically true. Now, every single woman is not physically stronger than every single man, but most men, most men are physically stronger than most women. And for most of world history, vocations have fit with that reality. Only men did jobs that required masculine strength. And this is not so much the case anymore because of technology, 
But the principle here still remains. The principle remains that men honor women by doing the heavy lifting. And we intuitively know that it's weird when men don't do that. Now, I think all that's true, the physical strength thing, but I I think Peter has more in mind here. I think the weakness he's talking about here is weakness in terms of authority. I think that fits the context better. Peter is telling the husband to remember that his wife is weaker as in she doesn't have the authority in the relationship. You do. The husband is the head. The husband has the God-given authority in the marriage. The wife is weaker, so honor her. This is about how the husband applies his authority. It's about how he exercises his authority. He should use, he is called by God to use his authority to honor his wife. And this is absolutely mind-boggling compared to the way that the world thinks about authority. What Peter is doing here is he is commending the way of Jesus who taught him. In Matthew 20, he remembers. Peter remembers what Jesus taught him in Matthew 20 when he said, don't be like the pagan rulers who lord their authority over others. Instead, be a servant like me, Jesus said. Be a servant. Lead others in the service of their good, even at your own expense. Just like Jesus did. Husbands, you are the head of your wife. Now honor her. And when it comes to our imagination of these things, the only way that this can really make sense to us is if we live out our marriages in the context of common mission, not competition. And I mentioned this bit here on competition because the world thinks of manhood and womanhood as competition. Okay? If, we, if we're going by how the world thinks, the world pits men and women against one another. It's called the battle of the sexes and so forth. And when we operate in the construct of the world, when we operate in competition, of course what Peter says here will make no sense to us because in competition, you do not honor weakness, you exploit it. Right? Just think about sports. Think about any kind of sport. In order to win, you try to figure out the weakest points of your opponent so that you can take advantage of those weakest points. In baseball, this is super obvious in the intentional walk. And yes, I'm giving an example from baseball because baseball is the greatest sport there is. And our Little League team has won the last two games. So I'm feeling good, and we're turning around and, and catching the ball and keeping our gloves down and got them on the right hand. And but I so the intent. Now I've experienced the intentional walk. Okay, not me personally, but the team we played against um, in high school. I played against this like super good player. And actually, he, he went to Melissa's high school. So a super good player. Every time we played these guys, we would walk this guy a lot. He was a great hitter. And an intentional walk, for those of you who don't love baseball yet, an intentional walk 
is when a, a great hitter comes through the plate and you decide we're going to give this guy first base for free rather than pitch to him. Okay, it's a risk assessment. Let's just give him the base. When this great hitter from this other team would come up, we would, we would give him first base even if it meant loading the bases. We didn't care. We would load the bases up so we didn't have to pitch to that guy. And every time we did it, I always felt a little sorry for the guy on deck. Because when you do that, what you're saying, in an intentional walk, what you're saying is, the guy on deck, we think we can get you out. And you're not just saying that to him. You're saying it to everybody. Everybody knows what's going on here. You're saying, we think you, guy on deck, we think you are a weaker hitter on your team. And so what we're going to do, we're going to exploit that weakness. Because that's what you do in competition, right? You exploit weakness. That's not what you do when you are on mission together. When you're on the same team, when you have the same goal, when you have the same destiny, you work together to lift up the other. That's what Peter's saying here. He says, wives and husbands are co-heirs. Men and women are heirs together of the grace of life. That's the reality in which all this takes place. There's a, a neat grammatical connection here I, I want to point out in verse 7. The, the first line of verse 7, that word live there in the Greek is the same prefix as the word heir. And so if we were reading it in the original, we would hear the similarity. In English, it'd be like saying, co-live with your wife since you are co-heirs with your wife. Here's the co-live, co-heir connection. There's a connection between our present living and our future inheritance. That's the point. A connection between our present living and our future inheritance. The grace of life that Peter mentions here is our eternal life to come. It's something we inherit, right? Which means we wait for its realization in the future. He's talking about heaven. This is our belonging to and our dwelling in the kingdom and presence of God forever. Men and women will experience that reality the same. Men and, and, and women, men and women together we experience together the reality of heaven. This is not Islam. We're Christians. Which means we, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, we are heirs together of our heavenly home. And therefore, we should live like it right now. Doesn't that change everything? It will be our gift together. Peter is saying, husbands, live together with your wives right now in the light that you will receive together with them the gift of heaven and live that way for this purpose, verse 7, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the final part of part two. Part one, part two, this is point two of part two, is this. Husbands, pray. Peter implies here that if a husband is acting in a way contrary to God's design, if he's not living with his wife according to knowledge, if he is misapplying his authority, if he is not showing his wife honor, God will not hear his prayers. And this makes total sense to us. It should. 
we cannot live outside of God's will and expect God to accomplish our wills, right? Living out of sync with God's design and God's word, it hinders our prayers, but that's only going to matter to us husbands if we pray. If you don't pray, who cares about the end of verse 7 here? And so my exhortation to you husbands is to pray. Pray for your family. Pray for your wives. And pray with the confidence that what you are praying, the way you are praying is congruent with the way you live. You are asking God to accomplish things for which you are a means. Those prayers are not hindered. But they are heard. They are received. And we pray they are granted by the grace of God. Look, it's no secret that the enemy wants to destroy our souls and our marriages and our churches and our witness. He, the, the enemy wants to destroy us. We know that. And he does it by distorting the truth. And so we might think, as some do, that our best defense against that is to find the most non-controversial interpretation of passages like this. We might think that we need to explain all of this stuff in a way that the world would approve of. That is misguided. Our greatest defense against the enemy's tactics is not an interpretation that is appetizing to the world, but it's the right understanding of the Bible's teaching and its right application. If we embrace God's truth and we live out God's truth, it is not going to be popular, but God will bless it. And the Holy Spirit will authenticate our witness and that will change a city for the glory of Jesus. I believe it. You believe it? Will. And that's what brings us to the table. Because the glory of Jesus is what this is all about. It always is about the glory of Jesus. We want more of Jesus and we want more of these cities to have more of Jesus through us, which all centers on the death of Jesus for us, where we know from the Bible, Romans 5, 8, God has shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this morning, if you're here and you believe that, if you embrace Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, if you are united to him by faith, we invite you to eat the bread and to drink the cup. Pastors will come and serve it to you now. The body of Jesus is the true bread. The blood of Jesus is the true drink. Let us serve you.